As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The Shadow People Show unleashed a torrent of emails. <laughs> Boy, did it ever. <laughs> you know, but I, I kind of thought that might happen because people had a lot of great stories that they wanted to share with us. Yeah, and, and a lot more people had seen things than I would have thought, actually. Oh, it's crazy. I, you know what? I, I kind of figured it, it might, but they needed a vehicle and a platform to do that. So thank you very much if you wrote in, because I know that's not easy. And thanks for your great questions. And we are still going through them all. Yes. There are so many of them. And we will respond to as many as we can. But if you don't hear from us, just know that we do read every single one of them. Absolutely. And if you wrote a really long one and you know who you are, I promise I will try and get to those myself personally. I will make a promise right here. There's only like four or five of them, but yeah. Uh, Some quick announcements before we get to tonight's show. Our store is finally open. There are hats, t-shirts, and decals in there. And we're going to be adding more products in the future, including coffee cups and some variations on the shirts. Right. The supplies we have in stock, they're currently limited until we figure out what kind of demand we have, but we're lined up for resupplies if we do run out. Exactly. And in other news, we have also launched our Patreon page finally. Un- Believable. I guess. Yes. It's been so long. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So for, for those of you that have written in asking how you can support us, contributing at Patreon, visiting our store, and supporting our sponsors are all great ways to do that. And in fact, the Patreon page has a fun little video that we made just for Patreon visitors. So you got to go there and check that out. There's a, It features us and one of our new interns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you can but, say. Uh, anyway. Well, and now we do something that we like to do every now and then on Astonishing Legends. We're going to take a left turn into the pages of history. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. No matter what secrets may be given to me by a 57, if given as the secret of a 57, and because I am one... I will hold the same sacredly in my own knowledge and never recommunicate it, even to a 57, unless authorized so to do by the brother whose secret it is. KGC initiation rites for their third degree, within which membership was kept from all other members of the organization. Published by Anonymous in 1861. Tonight's show touches on some pretty ugly moments in American history, and we're in no way endorsing any of the principles or actions of the organizations and individuals we're discussing in this or any episode of our show. Yes, and we're also covering a contentious period for which there are millions of pages and thousands of books where you can find the full story. And we encourage our listeners to read and learn and keep in mind that we are summarizing a colossal amount of information here. So to be clear, we are not history professors, and if you're a regular listener, you know 
we're not here to teach you what's already been taught to most folks. We're here to draw your attention to aspects of those things that the history books may have overlooked. Or intentionally left out. Right. Well, some regard this kind of thing as fringe history, but in the case of tonight's show, it's important to note that while there are some assumptions made about how certain people knew each other or how they interacted, a good portion of what we're about to tell you has been corroborated by a U.S. government inquiry by the Judge Advocate General, as well as a few publications from the inside of this organization. There are even cryptic symbols and hand gestures that have been photographed or painted into famous portraits of men that have since been positively identified as members. That's right, and we have some of those pictures on the website, and you'll see them in the show notes as well. What follows is the astonishing legend's take on the largest and most threatening conspiracy of insurrection in the history of the United States, the Knights of the Golden Circle. All right, so starting with what those numbers meant in the opening quote of 57, th- that stuff actually comes from a book called An Authentic Exposition of the KGC, Knights of the Golden Circle, A History of Secession from 1834 to 1861, written by a member of the order. So it's anonymous. Right. Well, you should also keep in mind, we're going to be talking about a secret organization. A secret, keep that in mind, a secret organization. So they don't really want to talk about who's involved and what their plans are. So that's kind of what the numbers mean. They stand for names places. Positions within the organization. And in fact, in this case of 57, there was three degrees to the Knights of the Golden Circle. And we're going to get into all this, so just be patient with us. The first degree was the military degree, the rank and file, the people that were the heavies. The cannon fodder. Exactly. The second degree was the financial degree. Right. Big contributors. Yes. Big big contributors and to a certain extent, the management of that, which we're going to come back to later, which was overseen also by the leaders. Right. And the third degree was the political degree. And it was important for this one to be the most secret one, which was mentioned in the quote, because these were sometimes sitting members of Congress or high-powered people who could not afford to ever be associated with such an organization. And as such, even internally, the people in the first and second degrees didn't even know who they were. Well, it was important for these names to remain anonymous. I mean, top secret, because these are known figures, okay? It would ruin you. Plus, around this time, you could get arrested, thrown in jail. All right, so we need to set the stage for this era and what, what's happening in the United States right now. And yes, what we're talking about is slavery and the abolition of slavery and the argument that led to the Civil War, ultimately. It was a very confusing period of time with a lot of different interests that were all competing for power and influence within this kind of a new nation still. That's right. And, you know, for me, when I went to high school back in the 80s, I'm dating myself here, but the way this stuff was taught, it was very kind of black and white. You, you had the North, you had the South, you had the people that, that were abolitionists and didn't approve of slavery, and then you had the people in the South who wanted to be slaveholders, and that was all there was to it. That is so far from the truth. And, you know, and now there, there's been a lot of corrections made in history. History's become more accurate as of late. I think the generations that have come behind you and me, Forrest, are learning more accurate versions of it. Well, there, there's there's revisionist history, and there's a lot of people with their own ideas now, Be- it, much like the time, because it's like you said, it's not, it wasn't black and white in that there were variations. There were people who liked the union, who wanted to be part of it, right. but also wanted more power within it and felt that they were getting short shrift on, on the whole political process. Yeah, you were dealing with expansionism. You were dealing with Manifest destiny. Manifest destiny, right. And we should talk about that a little bit. That I have a problem with the idea of manifest yeah, destiny. Well, it's some just folks kinda, did. Like, it's, it's a very grand – I mean, and, and it's not a specific policy that was ever laid out, but it's a very grandiose theme that to me just suggests uh, we get to do what we want because yeah, well, we're entitled. We have a sense of entitlement 
you know, which this kind of thing always leads to imperialism. But <laughs> what, the three tenets of Manifest Destiny, uh, according to Wikipedia, which we, you know, we don't go to Wikipedia all the time, but every now and then it does come in handy. The special virtues of the American people and their institutions, America's mission to redeem and remake the West in the image of agrarian America, an irresistible destiny to accomplish this essential duty. Well, you got to remember and keep in mind that this was a big open country that had not been explored much uh, other than Lewis and Clark at the time and a few other folks. So people are going to push westward in this grand idea to take the best ideals of Europe, but put an American spin on it, uh, on the values of family and farming and good old Americanism, which at the time was a new thing. This was a new country. So we're going to push forward. Never mind these uh, Native American folks that are <laughs> that seem right. to be here giving us trouble here and there. But uh, it's, you know what? It's going to happen. So let's just let's go push towards the right. coast. And yeah. we're entitled to it. Yeah. Well, there you go. I, it, there was a great feeling of nationalism. But you got to realize not everybody felt that way. Not every politician was on board with exactly these kind of tenets. Some believed in, you know, the grandness of America, but let's go about it a different way. And some said, you know what, damn the, uh, the objections, we're just going to do it, and we have a divine right to do this. Right. So, so there there's this complex political climate going on, and what's happening is the Democrats of the South feel like the Democratic Party is dying. And so in an effort to sort of rebel against that, they start to form these groups called Southern Rights Clubs. And this is – we're talking about like in the 18 – early 1830s and in that era and, and prior to what actually became the Knights of the Golden Circle, which we're going to get to here in a minute. But Yeah, the kind of the origins or the seeds were planted probably in the 1820s to 1830s and found its major voice in the mid-19th century. So 1850s, this really starts to get cooking. There's this complex political climate going on and what's happening is the Southern Rights Clubs, there's more and more of them. They're popping up everywhere. They're getting a little more organized. There's, there's some thought to the fact that they may have had some – Interoffice memos or, you know, some kind of paperwork, but no one has any of that. There's no record of it. Yeah. And it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a leap to think that maybe they never did that on purpose in terms of starting to gel into a larger organization, which we're gonna get to in a minute. Right. But it they they became kind of they became prominent all over the southern portions of the country and also into the north a little bit because there were people everywhere who were like this is not what's happening with the North and with abolitionism and right. everything. That's that's not good. The big ideas that we're fomenting here, we'll probably be saying that word quite a bit because right. uh, that's what was happening, is that you had the idea of a federal government versus your local state government because, you know, these states are kind of new and people who are grouped together. And guess what? You see this a lot today. A lot of people are saying, hey, you know what? Let the folks here in this state decide what's best yeah, for we us. We don't want to be told what to do. Yeah, not by a federal government that's uh, you know a thousand miles away, telling telling us what to do, and they don't know how we live. Exactly. So those were the kind of the two big ideas. So the, the southern states had a way of living and a yes. way of doing things. Yes, which was horrific. Well, yeah, not, not agreed to by everybody, but you, you know, Scott, you're right in that it, a lot of folks in the north said, "Hey, you know what? I like that idea too, even though I don't live down there. They should be able to decide what they want to do." With the property they own. Yeah. And what is that property? That's the horrific part of it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But, you know, so – and we're going to come back around to that. And like we said, there's a lot of unsavory parts of this this section of American history. One of the first things that these Southern Rights Clubs and these groups, as loosely organized as they were, considered a victory for them, and and not that they undertook it themselves personally, but they wanted to be involved in it and they were for it, was the Mexican-American War, which was from 1846 to 1848. And when it it was over – Mexico was two-thirds the size it was 
when it started. <laughs> so yeah. essentially, America gained possession of most of California, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. And the reason that the, these groups were into this was because, hey, look, this is more territory for us to do what we want to do. And they even had a, back in the eight from 1834 to 1840, they actually had I think five or six slaving ships. Even though international slavery had been abolished in uh, what a- 1808, I 1808, yeah. it was already yeah. you're not supposed to be doing this. The international trade of slaves. The international trade of slaves, exactly. So you, there weren't supposed to be new slaves coming to the country, but these guys were running their own ships. They were coming to secret places, secret beaches where nobody knew where they were, yeah. and getting. Yeah, and some of the ships got captured, but but others succeeded. So. They're really trying to keep this thing going. And now we have to get to what is the Golden Circle and what are the Knights of the Golden Circle. And we're going to talk a little bit about the people that were involved in it here in a minute. But first, I want to read this description of the organization from a book called The Knights of the Golden Circle, A Filibustering Fantasy. This was written by C.A. Bridges and was published in 1941. When first organized, the association is said to have had rather ambitious plans and objectives. The idea and name, Golden Circle, came from the proposal that with Havana as a center and a radius of 16 geographical degrees, or about 1,200 miles, a great circle be drawn that would include Maryland, Kentucky, southern Missouri, all the states south of them, a portion of Kansas, most of Texas, and old Mexico, all of Central America, the northern part of South America, and all the West Indies. This area they proposed to unite into a gigantic slave empire that would rival in power and prestige the Roman Empire of 2,000 years ago. Within this dream empire were the regions that produced nearly all the world's supply of tobacco, cotton, and sugar, and much of its finest rice and coffee. With a virtual world monopoly of these important commodities, it would have been in fact a rich region stretching around the Gulf of Mexico like a great golden circle. Once firmly established, this empire would control the commerce of the Gulf of Mexico, the West Indies, the Isthmian routes, the Mississippi, the Orinoco, and perhaps the Amazon. So we're not talking about a little tiny pipe dream here. (laughs) It's a big, big old plan. This is, you know, this is just a few steps short of world domination. Well, this hemisphere and a lot of the areas that they were adjacent to already. So they said, hey, let's just push into a lot of Texas and northern Mexico. Meanwhile, let's take over the uh, the West Indies. And Cuba. And yeah. here's but, the- but see, that's the thing. These were already slave-operated areas. Cuba was, you know, for the Spanish, a big slave area, and the, and the West Indies. So it was kind of already in place. Exactly. But how do you – and this comes to the next thing about this is like – and I was super fascinated about this when we were doing the research, but it's the concept of filibustering, which I have to openly admit when we came into this particular episode of the show, which, by the way, I, I just want you to ride this out. If you get bored with history, we promise you this is a two-parter, and the second part of this is going to take a pretty amazing turn. So just stick this out if you're not into the historical part. Just just ride it out. So, But anyway, <laughs> what I want to say is that I thought filibustering was when a senator or a congressperson stood up and talked and talked and talked, wore depends all night, and talked and never took a bathroom break or anything to force everyone else to concede – a point that they were going to that they wanted to make in terms of getting a bill passed or something like that. Right? Well, that's exactly right in the political sense. Yes, which and and when you think about it, think about what they're doing. You're kind of taking over the floor. You're forcing your way in. And where the English term filibuster comes from is actually derived from a Spanish word filibustero. I think <laughs> itself coming actually from a Dutch word 
Freibauter. I think it's something that's, that's what, nice. Well, that's what the uh, Google lady says yeah, again. Right. <laughs> and my my Dutch is a little rusty, so please yeah. forgive me. But what what it is? It's it's what we talked about before in our Oak Island series. It, you're a privateer. You're a robber. You're a pirate you're, in a way. You're yeah. You're taking over stuff that doesn't belong to you. And and land is power and wealth. So in the yeah in the political sense again. You're taking over the parliamentary procedure and holding it up, uh, kind of like screwing up the vote until they run out of time. And in the military sense, you're going into country that is not really yours and sometimes not really sanctioned by the government of your, of your, uh, of your origin, sometimes kind of secretly that happens. Right. It's like With, a yeah. backdoor deal. And, yeah, and, they're not officially endorsing it, but you know what? Go ahead if you can. Well, it's, yeah. it's like a, it's a military version of the Manifest Destiny. It's we're going to – you know what? We should have that. And were you telling me – when we were talking a few days ago about the research, were you the one telling me that you don't have a right to – have a country if you can't defend it, or you don't have a right to have land if you can't defend it? No, I think you're thinking of, uh, oh, brother, where art thou? <laughs> <laughs> you ain't no kind of man if you ain't got land. Exactly. Well, people think that in, in the very no, uh, in someone, the national I'd, sense. Somewhere I'd read that, or maybe it was a friend of ours that knew we were doing the show was talking about it. So you, you, it, just in the broad definition, it's like it's not your land if you can't defend it. Well, I think in a very philosophical sense, sure, because somebody's going to take it from you. Right. But I wanted to point out that this was an era where you could get away with that. If you could raise enough men and provision them and arm them and, you know, be a little cohesive in your attack, you can take over a small country for a while. Hey, it happened. You know what? Uh, che Guevara, did, if I read his book, because I've got sick of seeing the T-shirts in New York, it's like, <laughs> I got to know what's going on with this guy. And his <laughs> book, yeah. by the way, was, was very interesting. Again, not endorsing ideas. or No, whatever. because a lot of people die. But what I'm saying is that he and a bunch of guys got on a yacht and sailed to Cuba and took it over <laughs> from Batista. And uh, I mean, yeah. you know, it's like a handful of people on a yacht. And the yacht, no less, was actually called the Grandma. A couple of guys on a yacht called the Grandma take over Cuba. Anyway. Well, have you ever heard of a guy named Josiah Harlan? No. Oh, really? Because uh, he's he's instrumental in a film and book that we love. He is possibly, they say, the inspiration for Rudyard Kipling writing The Man Who Would Be King. King. Yes. Exactly. One of our favorite films, collectively, anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Connery and Michael Caine. Yeah. Yeah. They they basically play a couple of guys who decide to go out and impersonate kings and gods and take over (laughs) small countries and Kafiristan, which I don't think was a real place. No, (laughs) but but it's based on, but that's the thing. It's, It's not crazy because it is kind of based on what Josiah Harlan was able to accomplish in this era. And that's what I'm getting at, is that with a little bit of modern military might overcoming some inferior forces and winning over the local factions and warlords, you could do this. And that's kind of what Kane and Connery were doing is that they decided, hey, we, we have a lot of British military experience. We've been all around the world in, in a lot of battles. If we go into these areas and kind of muscle our way in... With sophisticated weapons. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. But what, so what you're saying yeah. is that Harlan was... The possible inspiration for Kipling's story? That's what they say, because he actually went into Afghanistan, which, you know, they call it Kafiristan here in the book and movie. But what he did was he was part of a great movement of adventurism where people were just now exploring the world. It was a little easier to travel and, and guys would get bored and they would just yeah. go out and uh, forget the safari. Yeah. I'm going to go take over a country. Well, that's what he did. <laughs> yeah. Well, he didn't he didn't plan on that. Yeah. And, and uh, the other thing is that a lot of these guys were very smart. He was a physician. 
as some other folks filibusters that we're going to talk about a little bit later. Whether a lot either of positions. Well, either self-taught or, or actually went through the process. There's a little bit of a catch-me-if-you-can feeling with some of these people. Yeah. So even the KGC and all these people, I'm a doctor. And it's like, well, where did you learn? I learned it from a place. <laughs> yeah, you know? That's right. Mostly, you know, you got the, look, if you can get the books and get in front of the board, you could convince them of your skills. And that's what a couple of folks have done. Uh, but he actually, you know, he, he became a, a surgeon, I think, for the uh, East India Company. And uh, so he travels to Afghanistan, and uh, he kind of uh, befriends some warlords there, and uh, not to get too much into the history, but he, he wins for himself and his heirs in perpetuity the title Prince of Gore. And Gore like? <laughs> well, G-H-O-R. Oh. And it's spelled a couple of different ways, but that's, uh, the, I think, the main spelling. That's a territory in Afghanistan? It, it is it. one of the 34 provinces oh. of Afghanistan. Okay. And Prince so, of Gore. Nice. Yeah, no, and, <laughs> and his great, great, great grandson, Scott Reniger. Well, familiar. Is it? Because he was star of the cult classic 1978 horror film, Dawn of the Dead. Get out of here. Yeah, no. And according to what his grandfather, his great-great-great-grandfather was able to achieve, he can accept the title of Prince of Gore. Yeah. He's an actual Prince of Gore. <laughs> well, I guess you And have a to, Prince of Gore. That's exactly, that's what's <laughs> spelled wow. in two different ways, but there's a tie-in. And so these things are, you know, these Every, traditions are goes to your theory. Everything is connected. In some weird way, either comically or spiritually in this case. We, you know what, we, we I, tend to find the comical version. Yes, but, we, <laughs> but you know, we have a lot of, I think we have a, a few uh, horror film aficionados in our audience. Yes, and we they, do. They may appreciate some that. followers on Twitter, for sure. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's, now the difference is, though, Harlan did not really care for he actually he hated slavery and uh, he didn't really much care for British imperialism so uh, that's kind of why he left the uh, East India Company and uh, set off on his own so uh, but that's but, but that's the spirit of these people right uh, this all yeah. goes to the the overriding point I always say zeitgeist in every yeah, episode right? right but it's in the zeitgeist the, <laughs> yeah. in the consciousness of these people this is the time this it's time to go get things done it's we need more territory where if something's working we got to keep doing it and we need to keep doing it until we can't do it anymore right well see there you go that that was another thing about uh, the Democrats and Jacksonian democracy in America, what's happening is that the world is becoming more modern. You're getting the industrial revolution happening. And so all these old ways that people are very fond of farming by hand, well, getting other people to farm by hand for you is conflicting with a sense of like, hey, let's let's embrace this modernism. Let's let's go forward and, and do that. And so you have these people like John Quitman and William Walker, who are these adventurous kind of folks with a little bit of military background who decide, uh, you know what, I'm just going to go take something over because I can. I, I think I can do it. And they did. So coming back to the KGC, the Knights of the Golden Circle, while all this is happening, it's only natural that people are starting to want to, you know, the Southern Rights Clubs, everybody, it's time to get a little bit more organized. You just need the right sort of charismatic leader to come in and make it happen. It's ripe. It's <laughs> yes. ripe. It's like that. It's like those couple of days that the avocado is great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the idea of the avocado is what it is. And, and people, you're right. It's ripe. People are waiting for somebody to coalesce these ideas exactly. uh, that they're brewing within people and uh, are they're fervent. They're whipped up about this. Right. So enter uh, George Washington Lafayette Bickley. <laughs> yes. The guy out of Cincinnati, of all places. Well, he, yeah, he's or from Ohio. Where he was born. Yeah. Um, he came into – or he's credited with creating the Knights of the Golden Circle, which was built on the backs of the plethora – of Southern Rights Clubs. So he, again, as you said, fomented that into an organization and started to put some structure to it and give it a, um, a hierarchy and a way 
to function. And that started with the first castle in Cincinnati, which is what they called their lodges. They called them castles. And who, who knows where they got that from. But yeah, so, so we, have, we have the Knights of the Golden Circle and their castles. Eventually, they had castles all over the country, mostly in the south, but all over the place. Well, yeah. Well, you know, the idea that I, I started to foment about, uh, about Bickley himself is that he talked a good game. He could, he could get people fired up, which is what happened. So he, of course, starts getting these ideas going of like, hey, Southern power, the states either within the Union or by themselves seceding, we need to coalesce our power exactly. and our wealth. A lot of people were aligned with this. So he, yeah, he was, he was having either himself or other folks start establishing chapters in other territories and states. And, and you know what? There was a lot of sympathizers in Southern Ohio. Yes. And, and he was actually, yeah, he was born in Indiana. Uh, but it's, it's that area, though. It's still wild and rough to a large degree. So there's not much structure yes. in a national sense. So Bickley starts to put goals together. And he starts to work these goals into the fabric of the Knights of the Golden Circle. There's a lot of things going on with him. And not only Bickley, though, but there was another character that came along, uh, Albert Pike. Yes, a little, I think a little later. <laughs> a little bit later on, but he's, we're going to get to him in a minute. He is responsible for turning the organization into a pretty good replication of a Masonic organization. Well, I think he borrowed a lot of ideas and structure that was already there that he had uh, over the years become very familiar with. Yes, because he – we'll come back to him yeah. before we go on about sure. him. And I just want to talk about a little bit about Bickley and the the overarching – goals of the Knights of the Golden Circle. One of the things was, as it pertained to President Lincoln, when he was running for office before he was elected, their idea was that they wanted him to get elected. And in fact, it would serve them well because it would definitely drive enough of a division in the country to to start a war. So they actually supported getting him into office, according to the documentation that we came across. That was how they knew they could catalyze all the members and all the castles into becoming a part of this idea of secession and creating their own system that was bigger and better and badder than – and I mean bad in this sort of 80s way <laughs> – yeah, than, right. uh, yeah. than what was happening in the North and the idea of the union. Well, like I said, I, th- I think that they felt like they weren't getting the credit and the power due to them because the North was uh, – well, that's – you know Tyrannical. Yeah. Well, that's where the, uh, the, the northern states – I think they had more industry going uh, and they seemed to have more money. And they thought, look, if we band together and we have a lot of territory and we increase our number of slaves dramatically here, exponentially, they have to deal with us. We'll right. have more senators. If we remain in the Union, we're a, a force to be reckoned with now. And guess what? Well, the thinking then was that, well, if we can't be in the Union, then uh, we're going to make our own thing. I just want to remind everyone that we are what you call temporary experts. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> no, what did you say before? Like adjunct uh, professors uh, for a week. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, my point is that it, one of the worst things I realized as we were researching this was just how how much these folks that were pro-slavery considered slaves their property. It was, it was so much a thing that, like, I can't even wrap my head around that because I am uh, – it's, it's just not something that I get. But <laughs> We, I, we don't, we don't think, often think of owning other people. No. Yeah. No. As, as, as strictly as property. No, I just, I just don't get it. But I guess what I'm saying is that when, when they, when they t- thought of these, of these people as property and then the government said, you can't have this property, we're taking it from you, they weren't even – they were so divorced from the inhumanity of it. That they just saw the government coming and taking something that they owned, not well, people, right? 
to something that they owned. And this is the this is the irony of that. The irony is that the slaveholders felt that they were being oppressed and their rights were being <laughs> yeah. taken away. Yeah. That's how they felt about the fact that the northern states and the abolitionists wanted to end slavery. And this was a problem for them because they had developed this whole great big system and it was immensely profitable and and it was working. Why change it? We're they're all going to be wealthy. Everything is working. It's only going to get better as long as we can keep doing what we're already doing, no matter how horrific it is. So, Well, it also fired up the other side as well, the abolitionists who did not like slavery and wanted to get rid of it. And when the Dred Scott decision came out in 1857, uh, Dred Scott versus Sanford uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court, which was supposed to settle the idea, I think Chief Justice Roger B. Taney or Taney, I can't remember how you pronounce his name, but he thought like, well, this is it. This is going to settle the whole deal. The slave Dred Scott, even though he moves to a free state, he cannot be a citizen. Therefore, he cannot enjoy the fruits of freedom. And he thought like, well, that'll put the whole thing to rest. Okay. No, it didn't. And so it got the abolitionists fired up, which then opposed them against the slaveholders who wanted to keep this going. And and just, yeah, you're right. Just how much they thought that, you know, this is my property. I paid for these guys. Yeah. And not even guys. They're, they're really just things that do work for you. So yeah. that you can get the idea of how much. Completely dehumanized. Right. Well, <laughs> it's like, well, I, I want to bring up Louis C.K. on on SNL doing that, that stint of his, his stand-up show uh, as Lincoln. And he said, I'm really sorry. I changed the way you do everything. Yes. And that's, but that's what it was. You were about to take away their entire livelihood and any chance for prosperity in the future as they saw it. Right. And, you know, and coming back to um, the book, The Authentic Exposition of the KGC or the Knights of the Golden Circle, here's an interesting quote from that regarding Lincoln since you brought him up. This was a letter that the anonymous author who was the member of the group said that he came across in the paperwork of, uh, I guess, one of the castles. Excuse me, not a letter. This was a speech that he had a, a piece of. Let them elect their abolition candidate. Is there one here who does not hope they will? For my part, it has been my desire for over 10 years that the North would give us some good excuse for the dissolution of the Union. Unknown member of the KGC giving a speech in the New Orleans Castle on January 11th, 1860. So they were all on board with getting him elected. This leads to a whole nother conspiracy, though. Like this, and we oh, are really boy. trying to sum up here. We are doing the cliffs notes of a lot of stuff because <laughs> this this episode is actually all about getting to part two. <laughs> which yeah, well, that, no, yeah, that's the tie-in to some more developments that we really find are is interesting. This is all interesting to us. We love yeah. history, yeah. But we're now going to be dipping into the areas where it gets very contentious, possibly for us, yes, and our listeners because talk about JFK. Okay, everybody. Yeah. He's got a theory. Man, if you were not on board with theirs, they got an earful for you. Although tonight's show is historical, we often talk a lot about paranormal experiences like oppressive entities, shadow people, and my personal favorite, old hag syndrome. But there's one aspect of these happenings that we don't discuss much with our listeners. The right kind of bedding. Exactly. I mean, if you're going to be frozen by terror in the middle of the night, you want to be as comfortable as possible. And there's no better way to experience a midnight haunting than being wrapped up in products offered at ParachuteHome.com. From comforters to duvets, sheets to quilts, and everything in between, ParachuteHome.com has everything you need to keep you relaxed, even if you're being terrorized by an evil force hovering over your frozen body or staring at you expressionless from behind a door. That goes without saying. Also, Parachute's website is straightforward and easy to use. Simply select the bedding items you want, your preferred fabric and color, and then get them delivered directly to your front door. With free shipping, 
free returns, and a 30-night risk-free guarantee, there's no reason you shouldn't wake up well-rested after a horrific night of unexplained sounds and paranormal intruders. Man, I cannot wait to test my new bedding tonight. I even got a Ouija board to get things rolling. (laughs) Why would you do that? Why, you have a better idea? Well, there was a yard sale in my neighborhood, and I did get a couple of creepy antique dolls. Nice. I didn't even think of that. I'd like to mention that Parachute Home also gives safe sleep. They partner with the United Nations Nothing But Nets to deliver life-saving malaria prevention bed nets to those in need. So you can feel good about feeling good. Shop online at parachutehome.com slash ALP and receive $25 off your first order by using the code ASTONISHING. That's right. Get $25 off by entering the code ASTONISHING at checkout on parachutehome.com slash ALP. Before it's too late. Let's talk a little bit about John Wilkes Booth. There is documentation that suggests that Booth was possibly a member of the KGC. There's even some research that we found that indicated that he underwent an initiation ritual in Montreal in Canada. But that's been hard to prove. There's some historians that have tried to make that connection and been unable to actually prove it. But what has been proven was that he had several known associates in the KGC and that he had interacted with with the KGC. So there's all this stuff kind of swirling around Booth and Lincoln. And it's the other thing that's important to note is from the other book, that the one that I was just reading from, was that the KGC had at one point a plot to actually kidnap him on his inauguration day, I believe. And so they were going to take a whole force and go up there and try to take over D.C. and take the treasury as well because they needed money for their Golden Circle operation. However, that operation was so crazy that even Jefferson Davis was like, don't do that. Right. I think uh, Thomas and Conrad had a had a plan – you know, uh, under the authorization of the Confederacy to to do this, and Booth's was similar, except he seemed a little bit of a, a, a wild card here, kind of a character, yeah, unstable, yeah, as we could say, as we you know, as we say. So, well, Booth is like, and again, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about this, but Booth is sort of treated, it seems, by the KGC as a little bit sort of a not very well respected patsy in a way. It's like, well, we'll see. It's kind of like the crazy. It's like in the Mafia family movie, or I don't know if you're watching the current Fargo, but there's a character yeah. on that, the the sort of runt of the litter of the Mafia family, who's kind of a ne'er-do-well. And oh, boy. There's a little bit of, like, Booth making noise about, I'm going to do something about this, and the KGC kind of going, well, okay, if you <laughs> Wait, do. Yeah. Are you saying he's the Fredo? Yeah. I, don't I, ever I, go against the family. Yeah, yeah. A, a little bit. Right, you know, right. and But I'm sure there'll be some kickback, but... yeah. The the long and short of it was there was an implication from the KGC, though, that if he did undertake steps that would lead to Lincoln's death or, or something of that nature, they made it clear to him that he would be taken care of. So there was no Secret Service at this time, right? Uh, he just had like a bodyguard or something? Right. Well, that, isn't that Wild Wild West with the <laughs> Artemis? <laughs> and he, Come on. No, well, no. He had, a, uh, he had a bodyguard. And the guy appointed himself, I think, as, as Lincoln's bodyguard because they were close personal friends. And his name was Ward Hill Lehman. But... Lincoln sent him away before the fatal night to Virginia for some reason. I'd have to read up more about that to, to figure it out. But he was replaced. The bodyguard watching Lincoln was replaced by a gentleman named John Frederick Parker, who now, okay, so here we go in, we start to, we start to get into conspiracy land here. Yes. In that, who hired this guy? Because I guess he was a known drunk and uh, was also known for sleeping on the job and visiting brothels during business hours. This is going on with the Secret Service. I don't know if you saw the news this past week. The guy in the guardhouse at the White House was, like, texting pictures of his 
jaunt. To, uh, well, you know what? To an underage girl. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, you just got your t- 10 years of tax returns pulled up oh, there. Come on. So to be reviewed. <laughs> the question is, is who hired him? Now, I found this blog, and it's, it's really kind of fascinating whether you kind of want to go to these places or not. Uh, but it's called Solving Lincoln's Assassination by Stephen Hager. And you can you can we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But he does bring up some interesting questions which now veer into the land of conspiracy and that if that was known that this guy was not the most uh, astute, top of his game <laughs> bodyguard, right. Right. why was he placed there? Because now during the play, our American cousin, now Mr. Lincoln, President Lincoln, is now unguarded. In right. a very, in a very because testy where did he, time. he went to have a drink or something across the street? And yeah. guess who was guess who was also in the bar? John Wilkes Booth. There you go. So some of the questions that Mister Hager brings up is who placed this guy on duty? Well, it'd be Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, right. who after the assassination is it's a bit of martial law of sorts because the country is in deep mourning and there's a lot of chaos going on. So. But it's more than just martial law. He also pushed the trial through super quick. I mean, not to get ahead of the game here, but he himself was a Mason, right? Yes. And he also was thought to be connected to the KGC, right? Yeah. There's well, there's connections there that again, this is get this gets very much into the territory of presidential assassination conspiracy because you start bringing in some other names, Clement Valendium. Valendingham, yes. Yep. Now, Valendingham was a known founding member of the Knights of the Golden Circle. So obviously, there's a conflict of interest there. Well, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, so he's, no, he's connected. He was, in fact, he was a big financial backer of Stanton as the Secretary of War, I believe right? he, yes, they were close personal friends. Close personal I, I, friends. A lot of people say, a lot of people have made mention of that. Right. So but now Stanton that- is, is putting a drunk bodyguard. So this is what's happening. Stanton who wouldn't be where he was without the assistance of a founding member of the Knights of the Golden Circle, is replacing Lincoln's missing bodyguard with a drunk. What what was his name? (laughs) John Frederick Parker, who was kind of known for not really being on the job and sober (laughs) a lot. Right. You know, but uh, the other things that tie in, though, that are kind of weird here, and uh, and again, Stephen Hager makes some interesting points if you want to uh, go down that path is that Stanton, after Lincoln's death, kind of seizes a lot of power in Washington, D.C. He enforced almost a martial law, right? Yeah, kind of. After the Right. I I can't, I don't know if I can say that uh, concretely, but uh, he took charge, and he also uh, took charge of the investigation and ran a military court and kind of quickly hung a few people that seemed inconsequential to the whole thing. Oh, right. Like Uh, uh, Mary Surratt. Exactly. Yeah, and Robert Redford made a movie about that called The Conspirator. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, well, that deals mostly with Mary Surratt. But her son, John Surratt, was an associate of John Wilkes Booth. And the hypothesis is that he was really in on the idea to kidnap Lincoln at first. He thought that was a good idea, trade him for some high rankings, uh, Confederate uh, prisoners of war. Yes. But then when talk turned of assassination, he was like, ah, I'm out of this. So he flees to Canada. Yes. And then eventually to Egypt. Yeah. But he gets picked up. But that was about 18 months after his mother was hung. And unfortunately for him, they had just passed a law forbidding military courts from trying civilians. So they were unable to secure his conviction. And he fully admitted that uh, he had associations with Booth, uh, but claimed no part of the murder. And the jury believed him and they, he got to go free. 
So there you go. He admits in court that he knew the guy and like, uh, he just got kind of crazy. So I could have jumped off at a certain point. Yeah. So these ideas aren't that far-fetched. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's implications that the Knights of the Golden Circle had more than just a little bit of a participation in the assassination of Lincoln. There's a lot of people that probably aren't on board with that, and we recognize that. But we're saying that we found some information that does point to that being entirely plausible. Sure. Well, that and he was executed, possibly John Wilkes Booth, instead of being interrogated. Or was he? Exactly. And I actually have a section here that I want to read from the book. Jesse James was one of his names by Del Schrader. Not an easy book to find, right? Very hard to find. In fact, they're running about $500 a copy these days. Yeah. uh, Treasure hunters go after them, which is a little bit of a hint as to where part two of this is going. Here's a little section from that book by Del Schrader and Jesse James III. And this is making reference to Jesse Woodson James. One of the things that this book implies is that there were several men who went by the name Jesse James. But this is regarding Jesse W. James, head of the Confederate underground. Jesse told me that Union troops and federal detectives traced Booth to an old barn on the Garrett Farm in the hills near Bowling Green, Virginia. In their hysteria, they set the barn afire and then shot and killed a crippled Union veteran whose only crime was being drunk at 2 o'clock in the morning. Colonel James also told me the sad fact was that some mighty innocent people were made to suffer and even hung and imprisoned because of their association with Booth. He said that the Confederate underground had no love for Booth. He had shot the president after it was too late. However, the organization protected him and put the lazy bastard on a $3,600 a year pension as long as he behaved himself and caused no trouble. Because of strict Confederate underground surveillance, Booth pulled up stakes and moved to Glen Rose, Texas, where he operated a distillery. He managed to get into difficulty with federal authorities over a special U.S. permit and tax and sent his lawyer to the federal district court in Paris, Texas. Deserting his distillery, Booth moved north to Granbury, Hood County, Texas, where he built the city's first stone business building at the southwest corner of Courthouse Square, now used as a restaurant. He also returned to the stage, a direct violation of his agreement with the underground. Texas Rangers and lawmen, mostly former Confederate soldiers, filed reports with the Knights of the Golden Circle, telling them about the strange behavior of John Wilkes Booth, alias James St. George. The actor assassin was drinking heavily, bragging about being the man who shot Lincoln, and boasting about his knowledge of Confederate underground secrets. Wow, that is not a great way to keep yourself alive. No, it kind of reminds me of the gentleman from uh, uh, Goodfellas, Henry Hill. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I remember that he went into witness protection and just kept getting in trouble anyway. Yeah, but what a, what a great movie, you know. <laughs> but what we're doing is bringing this about in that there is a, a seemingly definite connection here between John Surratt, Mary Surratt's son, John Wilkes Booth, because, oh, another thing that uh, Hager mentions here is that Surratt's diary, interestingly enough, mentions the KGC on almost every other page. Oh, we'll have a link to the diary. Oh, uh, yeah, great. Uh, But there's a lot of interesting connections here. So he's connected to Booth. Uh, His diary mentions the KGC. And once Stanton gets a hold of John Wilkes Booth's diary, there's 15 pages that go missing. Yes, torn out. Yeah, well, there you go. What was he talking about, I wonder? There's just a lot of impropriety. And we're not the first people to tell you, hey, there's a bunch of weirdness around Lincoln's assassination. Everybody says that. But the bottom line is that there there are these connections, and it it just – it gives one a little bit of pause. But ultimately, the fact is Lincoln was assassinated. And the Knights of the Golden Circle now are dealing with a new scenario. And they're getting to a point where it's time for them to go underground and disappear. 
One of the interesting things about this is that as the war was coming to a close and it became clear that the Confederacy was going to lose, the records that Albert Pike was overseeing, who was one of the later leaders in in a 33rd degree Scottish Rite Mason of one of the Masonic chapters in Charleston, which was the center for America at the time, and he was the most powerful Mason in America at the time, all of its records were burned for 50 or 60 years that it had been there. Everything burned. No history of anything they had ever done. This comes around to the Masonic connection, which we need to to get on to talking about with Pike. Pike was very well educated in the ways of the Masons, and specifically the Scottish Rite well, methodology. Be, to, right. To be clear, though, uh, he formulated the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite Masons. And I want to make this clear that these principles of slavery and the things that they uh, – expansionism, filibustering, those are not principles of Masonic. Those are not those are not Masonic principles in general. These guys took this uh, order that was already established in the structure and the rites and the symbology a little bit, and used it for their own purposes, as so often happens throughout history with some uh, some some bad folks. Yes, and to, I mean to a certain extent, if you have a considerable amount of power in an organization like that, the organization itself becomes malleable because you're you're making you're making you're calling the shots with what direction it takes going forward. Right. But what we're saying though is that he was a very smart guy. Again, studied them in the medical field, had a few military successes. But consider this, you may not have heard of him, but there's only two Confederate officers that have a statue in Washington DC, and the one is Robert E. Lee, the other one is Albert Pike. Yes. And the other thing is that being that high-ranking Mason, that status get you some powerful friends on the other side. And we talked about this before as well with Oak Island, that even if you were on the other side of a war as the enemy and you meet a fellow Mason in battle, you may give them some deference yes. being a brother. Uh, but you're still on, on opposite sides of a battle, of a war here. Uh, we're, all we're saying is that those connections are lasting and lifelong. And so he had some very powerful friends. He had some very deep-rooted knowledge with a, within a secret organization. Not the same kind of thing because, anybody, again, anybody can join the Masons except for the Knights of the Golden Circle. It's easy. You already have an organization that's in place that's secretive to a degree. That's right. And they, the gentleman who wrote the book from the inside, the author who is a former member, has suggested that – there was easily 100,000 men ready to take up arms on behalf of the KGC. Wow, at, really? You know, if they were called upon. All right, so an organization of this size has a pretty big need for money. They need a treasury. I mean, they're talking about a whole second world here they're trying to develop. <laughs> Secondary yeah. government, yeah. taking over territory, filibustering all over the place, sending men, ships, weapons everywhere trying to continue their slave trading and development of plantations and all kinds of stuff. So where is the money coming from? Now, to a certain extent, there's people high, people with a lot of power and who are donating. And also, at one point, I believe, I, I remember reading that in a particular uh, branch of the organization had helped with some, with a military action in Mexico. Emperor Maximilian gave oh. them, rewarded them $12.5 million or something. So what do you do with that money, especially if you don't trust the overarching government and the financial system that's in place? Can't put it in a bank. That's right. 
because it's going to get confiscated. Exactly. Uh, but one thing I wanted to uh, reiterate here is the three orders of the Knights of the Golden Circle. And the first degree is the, you know, the military degree, uh, the Knights of the Iron Hand. You had to pay an initiation fee to get in. Right. And I, I'm sure, you know, these guys don't have a lot of money. No, but uh, you're talking about 100,000 people or more. Yeah, well, you know? it adds up. Yeah. Yes. So, so the second degree was the financial degree. The members were known as the Knights of the True Faith. It's thought that the bulk of the membership fees and, and mo- maybe most of the funds on the on the level here came from this second degree. The financial level. Yeah, the Knights right. of the True Faith. Which is probably well, the wealthier donors. And exactly. Sort of yeah. yeah. If you want yeah. to get up a little higher into the, into the group and had a little more money, right. you know, you get better status. It's like anything else. Yeah. As you mentioned before, the Knights of the Columbian Star, we're talking about major players, but these guys are underground because, yes. again, you can't. And there's only a handful of them because their thing is not money it's power of real course. power political power right and and subterfuge and using that power to either destabilize what's happening up north or to build up something in the south that will rival what's going on up north politically right you know you still have a senate and votes have to be cast and exactly. people have to decide things but you can certainly influence people it's lobbying yeah exactly but it's it's subversive lobbying which it's, it's just lobbying. <laughs> it's, your, well, it's, your for, it's for your end goal, which is you're trying to get your ideas, your people, your section of the country in the most amount of power and prominence. Right. So now we're talking about a group that has gotten pretty big, has well-developed goals, has designs on conquering large portions of the Western Hemisphere, and needs a treasury, a ton right. of money. Well, to ex- to explain this, it's like you know their their goals have kind of shifted now. To, to again to back up a little yes, bit here, yeah. after the idea of the this golden circle, like well, we're probably not going to be taking over Cuba or or northern South America or most of Central America. Let's maybe focus all this energy and effort on the southern secessionist movement here. And when the war doesn't look like it's going to go in their way. You know what? Let's take another tack. Now we're on Plan C, which is, like you said, what are we going to do with this money and hide influence? It. Exactly. Got to hide it and right. go underground yeah. with the whole organization, which is pretty much what it did. It, it disappears like Kaiser Soze. It's, it's like <laughs> – uh, No, I was going to ask you, though, uh, uh, from what you were reading, though, does it just kind of drop off the radar pretty suddenly? Well, uh, it gets renamed or the – I think the Order of American Knights, Oak – for short, and yeah. it, it, but the long and short of it is, it it sort of starts to become more vaporous. <laughs> well, and they rebrand themselves in the in the, in the in the modern sense as well, because some of the folks that were sympathizers, especially up north, are starting to get some, shall we say, legal action directed towards them. Yes, and uh, some are going to jail. Yes. Right, for, for going, well, treasonous kind of things, going against the Union. Yes, and, and we also cannot forget that the origin of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, yeah. is traced to the KGC as well as an offshoot of it. Not directly connected in any way, but thought to be loosely connected or inspired well, by... Na- Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nothing to do with my first name, yes. as far as I know. But <laughs> No, but he was he was a known member, I believe. Yeah, yes. I've seen his name pop up on rolls. A known yeah. member of the KGC. Yes. Yes, and also the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. Right. The Ku Klux comes from the Greek word kuklos, which means circle. Ah. So is the word circle there connected to the golden circle? It's it's hard to say. Yeah. But, well, look, these ideas are being shared. Yes. You know, and, between various factions and groups. 
So the next thing I want to talk about just briefly is how did they finance all these years of operation? Where did the money come from? I mean, aside from the when they got reimbursed from a leader somewhere, it's, oh, here's a million, thank you for helping right. me with this $10 right. million dollars or whatever, which is hard to hide back in those days. Yeah, yeah. There's something else going on. Well, look, how, how many ways can you get money? You can either earn it, you can have it donated to you, or you can steal it. You can steal it. And... This is where we get to the whole thing about Jesse James. And the book, Jesse James was one of his names, actually suggests that there were a few guys known as Jesse James, some related, <laughs> some that were their actual names, other people that used the name to sort of operate and instill fear and be capable of committing crimes all over the place at the same time. And this is its whole its own whole separate episode that we will eventually do because I'm obsessed with this sort of Jesse James, just this, what, whatever that was. It was more than just one man, I believe. And yeah. there's other things to talk about. Like who was he? Who was he really? Was it this guy? <laughs> there's more than a few people that claim that Jesse James was their grandfather or great grandfather or whatever. And the, the possibility is if you believe Jesse James was one of his names and some of the other implications in the research we're doing is that they might all be right. They may all have versions of Jesse James as ancestors because what we understand is that he stole a lot of money, right? <laughs> For his day. Yes. Yeah. But he was not rich. He did right. not have – where did that money go? What yeah. happened to it? And why was he stealing it? Well, you know, what's interesting, just to interject here for a second, is that, you know, at the time and in, in, in folklore now, he was like, he was kind of a Robin Hood. He, he stole from the rich and he gave to the poor. There's really not much evidence of him giving anything to the poor. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's no evidence of him yeah. giving anything to anyone. Right. But what, right. what we are finding evidence of is stockpiling, hoarding, and concealing. And why was he doing this? Because the Knights of the Golden Circle had an agenda. And prior to the war, that agenda was to create the Golden Circle, which was a huge undertaking and would require hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, even in old-timey money. <laughs> <laughs> Olden <laughs> to use times. An official, to use yeah. an official term. Right. And after they lost the war, they still had a goal. They weren't ready to give up. They still wanted to figure out a way to achieve what they failed to achieve when they lost the war. Exactly, because they were not done with this ideal yet. I mean, not maybe not so much slavery for a lot of them. I'm sure, yes, that was the case. But it, it became a lot about power and Southern identity. And you can speak more to that than, than I certainly can. I sure can. <laughs> but they really thought they had a chance of, like, making this thing happen again. And you will need, like you said, you will need money. Well, here's the question. If you hide the money... How do you keep track of all this? You need a network. Yeah, and you know what else you need? A Scottish Rite Mason at the top who is familiar with Baconian ciphers and all the Masonic <laughs> influences and things that we talked about in the Oak Island episode. When you learn how to work that stuff, and I'm talking to you, Petter Amundsen, when <laughs> you learn that you can hide just about anything anywhere and you've got a pretty good bet that nobody's going to be able to get to it or certainly not easily. Exactly. It's it's like what we said, you know, the simple code at the beginning when we started, the numbers. What do the numbers stand for? Who are they talking about? Unless you have the key to this, you don't know. Or you're not supposed to figure it out, you know. So, again, it's hard to prosecute you if you discover this. It's hard to find out who are the top members, what are you talking about, what areas. Right. So, and here here's an example of some of the – just the simple the simple sort of encryption that they have and the symbol that we posted on Twitter and our Facebook and also I think on Instagram, it was a triangle. 
that you might have seen if you follow us in any of those places, which it's good to do because we keep people informed about uh, how the shows are progressing and when they're going to come out. Anyway, there's a triangle there. It has a – in the corners, it has a 7, a 3, and a 5. And in the middle, it has an R over the number 61. So that it's sort of cryptic looking. What is that? What does that mean? Well, the 7, the 3, and the 5 add up to 15, and that represents the 15 states and of the Confederacy. The 61 is supposedly a reference to 1861, the time of the revolution, which is what the R is for. However, in the code, in the book, for the, the internal codes of all the numbers, like we said, the 57 represented the Knights of the Columbian Star, which was the political degree of the Knights of the Golden Circle. 61 also equals a slaveholder. So you've got the 61 in the middle of the triangle. You've got the R over it for the revolution, and then you've got the 7, the 3, and the 5 for the 15 states. That's what that symbol means. I said in that tweet we were going to say what it meant, so I just did. I just <laughs> you, wanted to get you that You paid up. it off. Yes, yeah. I paid it off. And yeah, another thing that I want to say that's going to come up again later is that in the castles, there was an inner castle and an outer castle with the, all the castles, which is their version of a lodge. And the outer castle was the place where you got when you first joined or if you weren't that bright, maybe. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's where the orange drink and the uh, the cookies are served yeah. before, but you can't get to the inner sanctum. Yes, yet. the inner sanctum is where the real information is, where the real meetings happen and, and that sort of thing. The, the people that they had to stand to protect the outside, the outer castles were called sentinels, and the people who protected the inner castles were called guards. And that's going to come up later. So I just wanted to put that out there for the language as we move forward with the story, that you have sentinels and guards. The other thing that I want to say before we get to sort of the, the last part of this, we're summing up for this for part one right here, is that the sheer audacity of this organization, what it wanted to do and what it hoped to achieve. And, and, I, and I guess in, in today's day and age, it feels more audacious because we are in a different – we're in a different time. And the filters that apply to what can we do, the adventurism, the filibustering, we wouldn't think – nobody's going to think to do that these well, days. There, there's, there's much larger structures with much deadlier force in place. What if I told you, Scott, like, hey, you know what? I was able to round up uh, $30 million and I got about 5,000 guys – with guns, and it's like uh, you might get a ways, but your your yeah. your insurrection is going to be put down. Yes, now, by what, a drone that you will never see. <laughs> you'll just <laughs> you'll just wake up dead in the middle of the night. Yeah. But but my point earlier, though, and the picture we tried to paint earlier is that then this wasn't such a crazy idea. Exactly. In that again, not getting to their their per, proclivity for uh, owning other people, but yes. what I'm saying is, that, as far as the, the grabbing of the power. And the structure and the forming of states within the union or without, it could have been done. Right. And that's what we're getting at is that in this era – Things were still unstable. It was uncertain. The future of the country was uncertain. Nations were rising and falling. And this was happening in Europe with the Italian states. There are some connections there. As well, there as far as like the ideas coming from over the pond yes. to America, as far as like yeah, the, the Italian states forming into the country of Italy. I uh, think I think the colloquialism is across the pond. I don't think it's over the pond, really. I don't know who says over the pond. You're going to cut that anyway. You know no, why I'm he's going to because he hit the mic there and it made a thump. I think the colloquialism. <laughs> Is across the pond. It's it, not over the. Well, pond. when you're flying back then, when you take the uh, yes, right? The, That's uh, not going to work. They're okay. never going to save that. No. Anyway, point being is that they were borrowing ideas from an earlier era of of forming nations of like-minded people who are living in the same area, coming together to form their own governments. Which is again, this is another big point. It's like, do we have? Do are we a federal nation, 
Or are we a powerful set of states that want to believe the way we do things is best and we want to keep doing them? Right. So, and again, so that's the, that's the picture we're painting is that they got close, possibly, if things turn the other way, who knows? Well, and, and again, like you said, the picture we're painting, let's look at the big picture. Let's, let's recap this a little bit. We're talking about an organization that was born out of uh, disdain for the future of the country and what was happening. And these slaveholders, initially they were organized in these disparate groups. Eventually they coalesced, which was the word I was looking for earlier. And oh, very think nice. Yeah. They coalesced into something more sophisticated and were organized by people who brought in Masonic tenets for organizational stuff. Exactly. And as, as you said, we're yeah. not implying that Masons are into slavery. Well, no, because it's really, really Masonic. And I can speak a little bit on this personally is that, you know, my grandfather was one. And again, not to, too much of my, my personal history, but what I'm saying is that that is not there. It is just the opposite because it's it's about freedom and, and enlightenment of your fellow man, not enslaving them. Yes. However, what we're saying, though, is that if you need to borrow a structure, a, an idea of a structure at, with communications that are is kind of on the down low. Especially a secret society. There you go. In a way that is just not made public. You Why invent something new? You already have one. And guess what? A lot of the high-ranking people within this and lower and middle-ranking people are already members of this other organization. Yes. Stanton, as we mentioned earlier, Edwin Stanton, high-ranking and devout Mason, Pike, all these folks are already in this fraternal organization. Let's just take that and transmute it into this other thing that we're doing. Right. And and this is something I actually mentioned on a Facebook post this week. One of the things that the Masons learn is that if you need to mark something or you want to – you have some important information that you need to impart, one of the best ways to do it is to enshrine it in a stone structure or some kind of thing that you know is going to last a thousand years or yeah. to – Bury it in the ground. Take a look at Oak Island, Enoch's Chambers, the pillars, Boaz and Yahim, that were designed to deal with flood and fire. How do you protect information that you need to move forward for many, many generations? You need it to still be there after you are dust. Well, of course, but you bring up a good point here. What's the thing that's most durable that you don't have to smelt? <laughs> it's not iron or steel. By the way, there's an artistic piece of this guy made this metal that's supposed to last for like 200,000 years or whatever. That's got an inscription on it. But your, your point is exactly right in that there are those that believe the secrets of alchemy and hidden knowledge are inscribed in the great cathedrals of Europe because they also thought the same thing. What around here, you can't put it in a wooden building, those burn down. Right. Books burn. What can you do that's going to probably going to be around a thousand years, two thousand years from now? A giant stone monument or a cornerstone of a building or the Washington Monument, if you're into that, uh, the National Treasure kind of vein there, which also the second one deals with a little bit of the subject as well. So... All right, so now that we've set up the Knights of the Golden Circle and we've gone through a very sort of brief summary of how they came to be and then how they might have been connected to Lincoln's assassination, what would you do if we told you that their treasury, enough to run an entire country, was not lost? And is still being guarded to this day. Thank you so much for letting us into your head. We'll be back in two weeks with a new show. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound designer is Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to Tess Feifel for managing our research department. 
But most of all, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and at AstonishingLegends.com. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.